You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been circulating widely among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. I preach to you this Easter Sunday afternoon, the word of our God as you find it summarized and as we confess it in Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us, and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption of Jane for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because 
I am a member of Christ by faith. And thus share in his anointing so that I may, as prophet, confess his name. As priest, present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. And as king, fight with a free and good conscience against sin, the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, today, as you know, is Easter Sunday. And today is also here in the Church of Langley, Profession of Faith Sunday. But you may be wondering, of course, what do these two events have in common? And are they not rather different, the one from the other? After all, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate one of the Christian's faith's greatest events, namely the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from the dead. But then there is public profession of faith. In some sense, it's quite different, for it's not, some would say, so much about Christ, what Christ does or what happens to Christ, as it is about us professing our faith in him as well as in God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And hence we are sometimes quick to say that while Easter is all about Christ, public profession of faith is all about us. And so these two events are said to represent quite different things. And that should not be combined. So am I committing a sin here this afternoon? Am I wrong to combine these two events in one worship service? Am I perhaps taking away from Easter and adding perhaps something to public profession of faith? And even worse, am I committing another sin? For look, this afternoon we have before us not only Easter and public profession of faith, but we also have a Lord's Day from the Heidelberg Catechism. And just how suitable... Is that? You know, in a way, it looks a bit like a theological smorgasbord. But let's begin at the beginning. First, is it wrong, and that's the first question, is it wrong to link Easter and public profession of faith? I don't think so, and hope you don't think so either. I think it's entirely biblical and fitting. You may remember what Mary said when... She ran to the tomb and back again, and she met who she thought was a gardener, and suddenly realized it was the Lord, and she shouts out, Rabboni, teacher, master. And what about Thomas? Took him a while, but finally he professes, my Lord and my God. And I think those, just those two events illustrate that Easter and profession belong Together, And indeed, there is a sense in which Easter is surely worthy of the greatest and most glorious professions of faith that can be made of believers. But okay, then there is still that other matter of the Heidelberg Catechism intruding here this afternoon. Is that right? And is that fitting? Well, it takes a bit of a longer answer to come to the conclusion on that one. So let's look at Lord's Day 12. I preached to you on the theme, 
members of the risen Christ. And first of all, we're going to look at the glorious model. And secondly, at the powerful instrument. And finally, at the lowly recipients. Well, beloved, as we said already, our worship this afternoon, as it was this morning, is all about the risen Christ. And your public profession of faith, young people, is about him as well. Very soon you will be asked whether or not you seek your life outside of yourself in Jesus Christ. So your profession is very much about Jesus Christ. But who is he? Who is this person whose name you are professing? What has he done? What does he stand for? What sort of personality does he represent? Well, you may know Easter Sunday says he's both God and man. That's what Thomas taught us, right? Easter Sunday proclaims that on the third day he arose from the grave that death could not hold him. Easter Sunday says that he is now and forevermore our risen Lord and Savior. But that's not all. For there is more. There is also the fact that this living Christ has become our greatest and highest model. And to see that, we do well to make use of the Heidelberg Catechism. But what does Lord's Day 12, question and answer 31, tell us? It says that he is, summarizing the scriptures from many different places, that he is our chief prophet and teacher, that he is our only high priest, that he is our eternal king. Taken together, it's saying that Christ is the most exalted prophet, priest, and king imaginable. In other words, you young people here this afternoon, the one whose name you are professing is beyond compare. It is the name above every name. There is no higher Lord. There is no better Savior. There is no greater model anywhere. He alone is it. Yes, and the Gospels all bear this out. They testify to him even after his resurrection, I dare say, as this mighty threefold office bear. Take the fact that it says here he's our chief prophet and teacher. Where on Easter does Christ show himself to be such? Well, do you remember those men who were walking on the road to Emmaus, a town somewhat not too far from Jerusalem? Who tells us that as they were walking, they were busy discussing and, and they were trying to make sense of everything that they had seen and experienced over the last couple of days. They were trying, but not really succeeding. And then suddenly a stranger came and started to walk with them and, and he asked them about what they're talking about and they tell him about Jesus of Nazareth, whom they call a prophet who was sentenced to death, who was crucified, who died, but then who didn't stay buried. 
And these two men also tell him about the women who ran to the tomb and said the tomb was empty and some disciples ran to the tomb and they also found the tomb to be empty. And so these men are perplexed. Perplexed by the fact of an empty tomb. They didn't know how to explain this or what to make of it. So, so round and round they went. They talked and they talked, but they got nowhere. But then suddenly the stranger pipes up. And what does he do? He becomes their teacher and prophet. He reminds them of what the prophets of old had said. He even reminds them of what Jesus Christ, when he was alive and among them, had said. And thereafter, he proceeds to give them a sweeping Bible survey, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what's our Lord doing here? You can say he's acting as our chief prophet and teacher. He's fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. But then if Jesus is our greatest prophet, he's also our only high priest. And that too is what the gospel of the resurrection speaks about. We come back to Thomas, doubting Thomas as he's sometimes called, on that first Easter Sunday later in the day when Jesus appears to all of his disciples, Thomas is missing. And when he finally shows up, the other disciples tell him what he's missed. Is he disappointed? No. He's obstinate and he's doubtful. Unless, he says, I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, you have to be careful when you make these kinds of statements. For what happens? For all week, Thomas thinks... He's right. But then the next Sunday, Jesus comes again to his disciples, and he sees Thomas sitting there, and he looks at Thomas, and he pulls him over. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach into my side. Touch it with your hand. Wow, Jesus had heard every single word that Thomas had uttered. He wasn't there, but obviously he was there. Talk about an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing Savior. Thomas should have chosen his words more carefully in retrospect. And maybe it's a reminder that we all of us should do the same. One day, what you say today or tomorrow or yesterday may come back to haunt you. And yet not only that, for look, what is it that Thomas or Jesus tells Thomas to touch? Are it not 
so to speak, priestly hands? And is it not a priestly sight? Is it not so that our Lord confronts Thomas here with the fact that he is none other than the only high priest? And of course, in a sense, that's not true. There have been many high priests before Jesus Christ came along. However, none of them had ever sacrificed their own bodies. They'd all stuck and majored in animal sacrifice. They all labored in that kind of work. None of them had hands that were pierced. None of them had a side that was cut open. But Jesus did. Here he reminds Thomas, the rest of the disciples, and also us, that he is an extraordinary high priest for whom no sacrifice was ever too great. What he gives to his people then, and what he gives to his people today remains the same. He gives himself as an offering for sin. He gives his life this payment. He deserves to be called the only true, complete high priest. And you know, he's still the only high priest. For he remains busy even today as a priest. True, the work of sacrifice is done. But you know, the work of interceding, of, of pleading goes on. He still has children and followers on earth like you and I who often make a mess of things. And who need a defender who can plead and pay and cover and clean up their sin-stained lives. So, beloved, Easter reminds us of Jesus as our greatest prophet and our only priest. And I dare say Easter also reminds us that he is the only eternal king. And if you ask where do we get that from, well, look at the scripture reading that we had this afternoon of Matthew 28. At the very end of it, our Lord and Savior utters some truly remarkable words, royal words even, you can say. For look, what does he say in verse 18? But all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who but a king? A most unusual king can make such a grandiose statement. So the statement is first, and then come the orders. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, beloved, this is royal language. The king issues the command, go. The king tells his followers to obey everything I have commanded you. And note not what I've suggested to you, not even what I've taught you. No, this prophet speaks royal commands and issues royal decrees. He's also the king. 
And what a king, for listen to his very last words here, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Maybe you now understand why the Heidelberg Catechism summarizing the scripture says, he is an eternal king, people. He's not time bound, he's not limited, he's not restricted, no, he's eternal. I am with you always. And especially remember that I am with you to the very end of this present evil, fallen, dying, earthly age. Truly, this Christ promises to defend and preserve us in the redemption obtained for us. And so, beloved, especially young people, remember that you have Jesus Christ as your prophet, priest, and king. He's your savior, your model, your goal. Seek your life in him. Look to him constantly. Serve him unreservedly. And worship always at his feet. And you can. You know, this This sounds like a a huge calling and a great challenge, and it is. It's not easy to serve this glorious Savior today. There are lots of temptations and distractions and enticements and dangers out there and even in here. The world and our flesh are often like a minefield. You never know when you'll make a wrong step get blown away. And many people, many are. I know, and you probably know too, people who one day made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then they worshipped Him every Lord's Day. And they sent their children to catechism instruction, Christian schools. They donated to all kinds of Christian causes. But where are they now? They've abandoned the faith. The flesh and the things of the flesh are deemed to be much more important and exciting. And the world and its attractions are everything to them, and the devil, although they don't see him or even admit to knowing him, has them in his grip. You see, professing is one thing. Persevering is something else. It takes a lot to stay the course, to remain true to what you profess today, to keep the lamp burning. All around you, you'll meet flickering lights, and some of them go out. And what's to prevent yours from one day going out. Is there an answer to all of this? Yes, there is, and it lies in just one place and one person, namely the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he lives with you And will be in you. Notice the forever 
to be with you forever. And notice too that several chapters later, Jesus comes back to the Spirit and says, but when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truths. And then towards the end of that chapter 16 of John, He says, in this world you have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Here Jesus claims he's overcome the world and it's dangerous. How does he do so? By sending and using the Holy Spirit to keep us close to him and in the truth. You can say the Spirit is like the glue in our relationship with him. The Spirit is our guide, our keeper. Our preserver. Yes, and if you remember that, and keep on praying for him to live in you and work in you, you will be kept. By his power, he will keep you. By his word, he will guide you. By his presence, he will strengthen you. You know, the Catechism reminds us of this as well. First, it tells us that Christ has been anointed with this same Spirit, and you may know the Spirit kept him. In the wilderness, throughout his ministry, on the cross, the Spirit always kept him. And secondly, the Catechism summarizes and tells us that as King, Christ governs and defends and preserves us by his Word and Spirit. And third, it tells us that by faith, we too get to share in his anointing by the Holy Spirit. So fear not, flock, which he is keeping, though encircled by the night, child of God, as the hymn says, we call his might. But then, beloved, if we have a glorious model in Christ, and if we have a powerful instrument in the Spirit, there's also one more thing to consider, and that's us. What are we in this glorious context? What were we? Paul says, and we don't like to be reminded of that, but I think we need to be reminded of that, that we were by nature dead in our transgressions and sins, that we were followers of the spirit of disobedience, that we were gratifiers of the flesh, and that we were objects of wrath. How low can you go? Not much lower than this. But nevertheless, and here is the marvel of the gospel. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And you know what that means? That means that on Easter morning, Christ didn't rise alone and in isolation. There is a sense in which all of you who believe in him rose with him. Paul says we were made alive with Christ. You don't really get to live until you have resurrection life. But then life for what? For what purpose? 
To what end? Or more basically, why does God bother? And of course, he's bothered a lot. Well, the answer is to be found in many scripture passages again, and it's here all neatly tied together in question and answer 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where it says that he made us alive in Christ to share in the anointing of his Son. Even more specifically, he did it to make us like his Son. His son is the greatest prophet, priest, and king, but what do you see is that God now wants a lot of little clones. He wants an incomparable host of prophets and priests and kings. He's not content to have simply one glorious one. He wants more. And that means especially all of you who profess his name have a purpose and a calling and an office and a task. In the church of Jesus Christ, there is no unemployment. In the church of Jesus Christ, you can never become bored. In the church of Jesus Christ, it's never so that you have nothing to do. For if you're in Christ, in his resurrection power, you're now called to be a prophet. And what do prophets do but listen to the voice of God, study the word of God, communicate the will of God? And along with professing your faith comes the calling to, as a prophet, confess... His name. That means you need to pray for boldness to stand up for the name of your risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That means you need to pray for the courage to spread his name. Pray for the words to make him known. And to be faithful to him. He's not just to be on your heart. He's to be on your lips as well. Be a prophet. And also be a priest. The Catechism says that at bottom, this is all about presenting yourself as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. That's taken from Romans 12, 1 Peter chapter 2. And together it's kind of noteworthy and it reminds us of a number of things. The first thing is that it's important that in Christ we now begin to view our lives as sacrifices. And what's his sacrifice? Well, biblically speaking, it's something that's totally dedicated and given over to the Lord, to his praise, and to his service. Think of the cereal and the animal offerings in the Old Testament. They were totally surrendered to God. And that's now how we should view our lives. In the words of Lord's Day 1, I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I belong to God. I become 
sacrifice. But then notice the qualifier, I have become a living sacrifice. Cereal offerings of wheat and barley get burned and die. Animal offerings get killed, cut up, wasted, or eaten. All the other sacrifices become dead stuff. But God doesn't want you to become a dead sacrifice. He wants you to be always and ever a living, walking, testifying, worshiping, serving sacrifice. And notice the catechism even adds, according to the scripture, a living sacrifice of thankfulness. Not a sacrifice of blood, not a sacrifice of complaint, not a sacrifice of grumpiness. Now he wants you to serve him cheerfully, enthusiastically, with joy, brimming over with gratitude and thanksgiving. And so you have a prophetic challenge before you. Open wide your mouth and make sure that what comes out of it is about Christ. And live your life as a sacrifice. And one more thing, live like royalty. Be a king. Be a queen. You know, when you walk in the hand of the hand of Jesus Christ, the great king, two things happen to you. First is that you develop a kind of intolerant fighting spirit. I'm not talking about the WWF, the World Wrestling Federation, but about standing up for what's right and true, resisting evil in all of its forms, and putting on the armor of God. Christians turn the other cheek when nasty things are done to them or said about them. But you know, when it's about the honor of the name of God, the coming of the kingdom of God, the children of God, and when their lives are at stake, then we're no longer doormats and pushovers. Then we don't fall down all over and play dead. When it comes to evil. And we fight, and we resist, and we say no. That's the first thing. You need to develop a bit of a royal fighting spirit. And you also need to develop, it says here, summarizing scripture, a bit of a a reigning royal spirit too. And what does that mean and what does that entail? Well, it means that we now do everything in hope and fail with expectation. You don't need me to tell you life as its ups and downs, good days, bad days, nice days, ugly days, dark days like yesterday, bright days like today. We all have our struggles, our trials, our burdens to bear. But you know, once you're enrolled in the army of Jesus Christ, you learn also to look beyond these things 
And you know that in the end, when all is said and done, that our great King, Jesus Christ, is going to win. Hereafter, we're going to reign with Him eternally over all creatures. I've been preaching of late on the book of Revelation and people say it's tough. It is tough. Tough in parts, but not tough in whole. The theme of Revelation is eminently clear. It basically is all about the theme that Jesus is going to win. It doesn't matter who opposes him. He's going to win. One day the struggle is going to be over. One day the glory is going to come down. One day our risen Lord and Savior is going to come back for good. Truly a better day is coming. So we not only have a fighting spirit, we have a reigning spirit. And in the meantime, beloved, all of you, and you who are professing your faith here this afternoon, keep, keep on looking to Christ, this glorious model. Keep on depending upon His Spirit. And keep on serving this great Lord as prophets, priests, and kings in His service. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.